0: So welcome everyone to Lesson 1 of Survival of a Nation, and uh, we're going to be discussing the land of Israel. It's always a, a wonderful topic to discuss, uh, not just because it's such a rich and deep topic, but because it's an important one and it's something that comes up very often, sometimes in ways that we don't appreciate. Um, and for some reason, it's always in the news. Somehow, some way, Israel is in the news, and um, there's always... Some type of crisis going on either externally internally there's always a balagan you know what balagan means balagan is kind of like chaos. there's always this chaos going on in Israel and um, you know sometimes you'd think <laughs> so much chaos let's forget about this right so there's uh, there's this joke um, the, the, uh, a guy is telling his friend that for the 25th anniversary they went to the Bahamas. I took my wife to the Bahamas. And um, he says, wow, that's amazing. So what are you going to do for your 50th anniversary? Maybe I'll bring her back. <laughs> so, <laughs> what, what's the connection here? Hi, Alyssa, come on in. Right here. So what's the connection to this, to this story over here? Good evening. Welcome. Welcome. So what's the, what's the idea? When it comes to marriage, the healthiest way to look at a marriage is... We can't leave this thing. It's not like, oh, we have an exit strategy. Yes, of course, you know, there is that possibility. But in order for it to be a healthy and long-lasting marriage, it's got to be, hey, we're in this, we're going to figure this out. The same thing is true about the land of Israel. You know, sometimes people say, well, (laughs) you know, the state is 75 years old, and look what type of craziness is going on. Maybe it's time to find an exit strategy. Maybe it's time to find a way to just kind of extricate ourselves from the situation and, uh, you know, Everyone is going to be okay somewhere else. Um, we don't even have to talk about internal problems and internal chaos. I mean, externally, the, the, you know, the, the security issue of Israel is something that's so serious and so intense. And, you know, every decade we're facing another existential threat. Um, and we're still facing those threats. Iran is still around and they're still, they still have um, quite a frightening rhetoric. And they're, you know, they really want to do certain things. And you might think to yourself, like, who, who who has to be specifically here? Why do we have to do this? Let's just give up this project and move away from it. And the question is, why don't Jews ever consider that? We never do. Not the Israelis Israelis do leave Israel, but it's not like they're abandoning the entire concept of having a Jewish presence there and that Jews should live there. Um, and the Jews of the diaspora don't never either uh, consider the idea of, you know, what maybe maybe Jews should not be there. Maybe Jews don't belong there. It's always look, Israel is here to stay. Now, how do we do? What do we do in order to make things better internally and externally as well? And so, uh, the reason I chose to uh, talk about this topic of Israel specifically through um, this uh, this course, which is, by the way, it's not in the regular JLI um, schedule. They they made this course several years ago. We weren't yet doing JLI here, and so we haven't done it. Uh, But I was thinking of what would be an interesting topic and a specific lens through which we could study about Israel. And I think studying it through the lens of the Six-Day War is an excellent way how to to basically deal with many of the angles that that are involved in the Israel conversation. We'll talk about security, we'll talk about the right to the land, we'll talk about what are some um, suggestions or policies. Um, and if they're good ones or not. Um, and as we go through the six weeks, we're going to have a lot of conversation, discussion. Um, what usually happens in these classes is I usually talk the most. Uh, I think that's what you all paid for. But, um, uh, but I always welcome questions and definitely if there is a conversation that comes up, I'll, I'll moderate it and I'm going to control it, but definitely please feel free uh, to express your opinions and your uh, perspectives. And I think that would enhance our conversation and our study um, tremendously. Okay, um, so first of all, why, what is the evidence that Israel is so important to Jews and to Judaism? I'm not just talking about since 1948, I'm not talking about after World War II, after the Holocaust. You know, what is the history of the Jewish obsession with the, geographical, the, the, the land which we call today as Israel? So if we go to text number one. It's a quote from the book of Daniel. So text 1 is on page 2 of, um, of the student book. Now, the, let, let me first introduce some context to this, um, to this text. So, the, the Jewish people left Egypt about 3,335 years ago, I believe, and um, right after that they came to Mount Sinai, they received the Torah, they became the Jewish nation. 40 years later, Joshua led them into the land of Israel. 850 years later, the first holy temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, who was the, king, the Babylonian king at the time. And the Jewish people, most of them, besides for a very small community, was banished from the land of Israel. They went into Galut, exile, diaspora. Most of them went to Babylon, Persia, Media, these areas. So pretty much uh, going further east. Some of them went down to Egypt. Some of them, uh, there, were, there were certain things that happened in the land of Israel that the remnant of the Jewish Yeshuv or the Jewish community that was there went down to Egypt, but most of them went towards the east, to Babylon, Babylon and, and Persia. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar took some of the, the Jewish princes, uh, he took them into his palace that they should, be, um, they should be advisors to him. And this exile went on for a period of about 70 years. Uh, towards the end of this period, was the famous Purim story, with Ahasuerus and Mordecai and Esther and all of that. Um, So the story that we're learning about in text 1 happened with the prophet Daniel, who was a high-ranking advisor to um, the Babylonian kings after Nebuchadnezzar died. So there was a king, Darius, the Mede. And so he inherited many of Nebuchadnezzar's officers and advisors. One of them was this Jew named Daniel. So this is approximately 50 years after the destruction of the temple. Now, as is common in uh, many of the stories of Jews in uh, in the halls of power, their colleagues weren't too happy about the fact that they were there, and they are always trying to conspire to find ways how to sideline the Jew, how to get rid of them, So how to get rid of the Jews. So the other advisors, the the, the, the Medes, they approached the king and they said, look, <coughs> they said, um, we think that in order to consolidate the power that you have over your kingdom you should decree that no one is allowed to pray to any deity other than yourself right that's that's one way how to ensure that people are going to be uh, loyal and so it was a decree why did they make this decree oh on pain of death if someone is caught praying they're going to be killed they knew that Daniel prayed three times a day and Daniel prayed in a very public fashion not that he prayed in the palace But at home, when he would pray, he would open up his windows towards west. Why towards west? So, um, upon learning that the decree had been written, Daniel went to his home, where in the upstairs room there were windows open facing Jerusalem. Three times a day he kneeled and prayed and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done beforehand. And he paid a price. They caught him. And the punishment was that he was going to be thrown into a den of lions. He was thrown into the den of lions. He was there for a few days. And the lions didn't touch him. An open miracle. What do we see from here? Fifty years after being banished from the land of Israel, Daniel, a Jew, continues to pray every day, three times a day, towards Jerusalem. He's constantly thinking about Jerusalem. And that's what we do until today. When we pray, we are meant to face east, if we're in America or in Europe... If you're in Syria, you face south. If you're in South Africa, you should face north. right? And if you're in Saudi Arabia, you should be facing west. Everyone facing towards the same land, the same city. Uh, Let's talk about the actual prayers themselves, the content of the prayers. And by the way, these prayers were composed 2,000 years ago. Text number two, this is from the Siddur. Sound the great shofar for our freedom. Raise a banner to gather our exiles and gather us from the four corners of the earth. Where? Into our land. Blessed are you who gathers the dispersed of his people Israel. So, even after the destruction of the second temple, and we're already coming to about 2,000 years since that happened, every single day, three times a day, Jews all over the world and all uh, all types of Jews say this prayer in the 18 blessings. Sephardim, Ashkenazim, any type, any stripe, these are all there, it's all part of the Siddur. We eat every day, right? Now, I know nowadays we're not very big into eating uh, eating bread much, but um, one of the basic staples of, of, of nutrition is bread. And when we eat bread and then we have to do the Berkat Hamazon, it is a tradition that before we actually start benching, before we start to recite Berkat Hamazon, we say a paragraph or, or three paragraphs beforehand, different, uh, different chapters from Tehillim. If it's a weekday, we recite chapter 3A, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept as we remembered Zion. Right, go continue. How can we sing the song of God on foreign soil? So, even today, after we ate breakfast, lunch, or supper, and we're about to do Berkatamazon, we talk about Zion, we talk about uh, Israel. Um, if it's Shabbat or a holiday, we sing the Shir What does it say over there? A song of ascent. We're on text 3b. A song of ascents when God returns the returnees of Zion, and we will be like dreamers right we're returning where are we returning to we're returning to israel let's talk about the actual contents of berkat amazon text six uh, text three c our god have compassion on your people israel on your city jerusalem on zion the dwelling place of your glory on the kingship of the house of david your anointed one <clears throat> and on the great and holy house upon which your name is called rebuild jerusalem the holy city speedily in our days we pray 3 times a day. Every time we eat, we talk about Israel. We talk about Jerusalem. So this is this is extremely central. It goes even further than that. What Jewish events or services are the are most attended? Let's talk about a service that's most attended. What do you what would you say? The holidays. The holidays. Which holidays?
1: Well, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur.
0: Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. From Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which one has more attendance? Do you think? Maybe Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. In Yom Kippur itself, there's several, you know, options of what to what to participate in. Which hal- which prayer on Yom Kippur is most attended? I think
1: Komin. Komin, Komin, right. Right.
0: You think so? I think Neila. Oh yeah,
1: like.
0: Nihila Neila. That's. Well, I'll tell you something very interesting. In Russia, in Russia during during communism, um, one of the times that a lot of Jews would come to the synagogue was Yom Kippur and the ila was very very it was packed. Well attended. Anyway, be it as it may, let's put it this way, the ila has a very high attendance uh, rate. What's the last thing we say in the ila? L'shanah yeah. haba'ah b'Yerushalayim. Next year in Jerusalem. Um, which uh, celebration is most attended <coughs> which Jewish celebrate annual Jewish celebration <coughs> meal is most attended I'm
1: sure Passover. Passover.
0: Passover Seder what do we say at the end of the Passover
1: Seder
0: <laughs> Jews come together the most Jews are there what's the final parting message guys <laughs> make your flights <laughs> we're gonna be in Israel next year right the next year we're not there because you know unfortunately Mashiach is not here yet but we haven't taken it out of the Siddur. We haven't taken it out of the Agada. The Shana Abba, Abir Yerushalayim, is there. And we continue to say it. We continue to pray for it. And there were some that actually put uh, their money to where their mouth is and they actually made it to Israel. Um, you'll see on the next page, there's a whole timeline of the different aliyot, different times when Jews came to the land of Israel, sometimes with more than or less, etc. And when they actually came, There was this tremendous... It was like a homecoming for them. It was like a tremendous homecoming. It's not like they were coming to some exotic spot that they've heard about. They were coming home to something familiar. As Maimonides writes, very fascinating. Maimonides writes in text number 4, The great sages would kiss the boundaries of the land of Israel upon arrival, kiss its stones and roll in its dust. Indeed, it is written... Your servants cherish her stones and favor her dust. You don't kiss something that's exotic. You kiss home. Right? You kiss your mother. And this is what this is what Jews would do when they would come to Israel. They haven't been there for 2,000 years. So what? This is mom. This is dad. This is home. Let's continue. Although one cannot compare being received by the Holy Land during one's lifetime to being received by it after one's death. Nevertheless, the greatest sages would bring their dead to be buried in the Holy Land as can be learned from the example of our father Jacob and the righteous Joseph. The dream of Jews is to be buried in Israel. Even after that, in in fact Maimonides who did not die in Israel, he died in Egypt, he's buried in Israel, in Tiberias. Text number 5. This was um, a beautiful song or poem that was composed by Rabbi Yehuda Halevi. So um, he, he lived about like 800 years ago, 700 years ago. Uh, my heart is in the east, he's referring to Israel, and I am at the ends of the west. How can I taste what I eat and how could it be savored? How shall I render my vows and my bonds while Zion is yet in the fetters of Rome and I am in the shackles of Arabia? It shall be an, as it shall be as easy for me, to forsake all the bounty of Spain, as it is precious for me to behold, the dust of the desolate abode. People are not trying to go to Israel because oh, the land flowing with milk and honey. Let's put it this way: even today, it's not flowing with milk and honey. Maybe it's flowing with technology by now, <coughs> but it's a it, it's a desolate desert. It was a swamp in the 1800s. When they came and they wanted to start up kibbutzim, they had to create that stuff from nothing. Basically, this is a place where they have to figure out how to manufacture water, for heaven's sake. You know, people aren't coming to Israel for its natural resources. What is connecting the Jewish people to the land of Israel? And the answer is that it always has been our homeland. We've had this connection. We continue to have this connection to it. We have this familiarity with it. And we have this tremendous love for it. All right, so that works with regard to our internal discussion of how much we love Israel and how much we want the best for Israel and ultimately want to get to Israel either to visit or to live there or to be buried there. This is all good and fine. The problem is that the Israel conversation plays itself out on the international stage and it has some very, very serious consequences. So I'd like to, we're going to kind of move the conversation along specifically to the Six-Day War. And I'd like to share with you, it's an eight minute clip, which describes the rhetoric or I'm sorry, which describes the mood before the war and the rhetoric of Israel's enemies and how the world kind of responded to that, which will set the stage for the for the rest of our conversation, trying to understand number one, why are we obsessed with Israel? And how can we communicate and explain to everyone else why they should respect that and accept that? So we're going to share the screen here. (coughs) <coughs> share a screen I'm sorry, no Uh-oh, here okay share a sound
2: between Israel and its Arab neighbors are legendary for the staggering speed and fury of Israel's military victory. But the dreadful days of rage and trepidation leading to the outbreak of hostilities were no less dramatic. The Arab nations refused to accept Israel's presence. To the Arab mind, the humiliation of their defeat in 1948 could be removed only by soaking the Holy Land in the blood of its Jewish inhabitants. In the months before June 1967, calls for Israel's annihilation swelled into a hysterical battle cry on the streets of every Arab country in the Middle East. Egyptian President, Gamal Abdel Nasser, stood at the heart of this incitement. A charismatic leader with appeal across the Arab world, Nasser campaigned for Arab unity and for the military destruction of Israel. His blood-curdling speeches were broadcast to every Arab nation, inflaming populations and shaping anti-Israel policy. Israel was a precarious sliver of land along the Mediterranean sand, barely 12 miles wide at her waist and dwarfed by colossal foes in every direction. Egypt growled to herself. Jordan menaced her eastern border, and Syria rained mortars onto her north. These three nations commanded formidable standing armies and boasted hundreds of modern tanks, aircrafts, and artillery units. Additional Arab countries were prepared to offer varying degrees of commitment to any war against Israel ranging from symbolic support to actual pilots, planes, tanks, and troops. Foremost among these were Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Algeria, Kuwait, and Lebanon. Behind these loomed a larger
1: foe.
2: The Soviet Union, which armed and advised many of the Arab governments. Israel leaned on the support of a heavyweight, but half-hearted ally, the United States of America. But President Lyndon B. Johnson, who took office in 1963, mired as he was in the Vietnam War, was more concerned with de-escalating the Cold War than addressing Israel's existential concerns. It was the Soviets who extended a lit match to the Arab powder cake that erupted in the 1967 Six-Day War. On May 13, 1967, the Soviets supplied Egypt with false intelligence claiming that Israel has mobilized to invade Syria. They urge Egypt to take action, and in the first act of aggression, Nasser rolls his enormous Egyptian army into the Sinai Peninsula, towards Israel's southern border. The Arab world erupts in euphoric celebrations and calls to slaughter the Jews. Nasser becomes an instant hero. Israel and the UN publicly clarify that Israel has not mobilized against Syria, but Nasser responds on May 15th by ordering the UN peacekeeping force that forms a buffer between Egypt and Israel to withdraw from Sinai. Israel's government is thrown into panic. UN Secretary General U Thant unilaterally orders his peacekeepers to comply with Nasser's demand. On May 19th, to Israel's horror and to the world's astonishment, the UN emergency force vanishes leaving Israel exposed to a vast Egyptian force that would swell in just three days to some 80,000 troops and 600 tanks. Israel orders a large-scale mobilization of its army reserves and issues a stern warning that should Egypt close the Straits of Tiran to Israeli shipping, Israel will consider it an act of war and react accordingly. Meanwhile, the Arab world escalates its rhetoric. On May 18th, Cairo Radio broadcasts the following message. Every
3: one of the 100 million Arabs has been living for the past 19 years on one hope, to live to see the day Israel is liquidated. There is no life, no peace, nor hope for the gangs of Zionism to remain in the occupied land. As of today, there no longer exists the UN International Emergency Force to protect Israel. The sole method we shall apply against Israel is a total war, which will result in the extermination of Zionist existence. On May 20th, Syria's Defense Minister Hafez Assad declares, Our forces are now entirely ready, not only to repulse any aggression, but to initiate the act ourselves, and to explode the Zionist presence in the Arab homeland of Palestine. The Syrian army, with its finger on the trigger, is united. I believe that the time
2: has come to begin a battle of annihilation. And then, it happened. On May 23rd, Egypt blockaded the Straits of Tehran to Israeli shipping in an act of war under international law. Israel's oil supply route is now cut off. No nation has rallied to Israel's cause. Mayor Amit, head of the Israeli Mossad, later recalled the tense days before the outbreak of the war.
3: In the middle of the night, I received a visit from the CIA representative in Israel, who said
2: to me, if you shoot first, you will stand alone in this battle. Israel's military, intelligence, and civil leadership anticipate the worst. With Israeli men drafted into the army, the economy falters. Life grinds to a standstill. Students, housewives, and children dig trenches, build shelters, and volunteer for essential services. Anticipating record loss of life, Israel designates parks as mass cemeteries. A spirit of despair settles over the country's two million Jews who whisper with dread of a second holocaust. But Nasser is upbeat. He is ready for war. On May 26th, Nasser addresses the General Council of the International Confederation of Arab Trade Unions. We are ready to enter a general war with Israel the
3: battle will be a general one, and our basic objective will be to destroy Israel.
2: On May 30th, King Hussein of Jordan signs a defense treaty with Egypt, placing the Jordanian army under Egyptian command. The Egyptian-Syrian-Jordanian axis is now complete. Ahmed Shukari, chairman of the PLO in Jordanian Jerusalem, is asked in a June 1st news interview what will happen to the Israelis if there is a war? His response? Those who survive will remain in Palestine. I estimate that none of them will survive. The Arab military buildup continues. Egypt has 100,000 troops and 930 tanks in the Sinai. And another 110,000 soldiers and 450 combat aircraft on notice. Syria has 63,000 troops and Jordan, 55,000. Israel's mostly civilian army is absurdly outnumbered in manpower, weaponry, planes, tanks, and artillery. Slightly more than two decades after the Holocaust, and (inaudible) less than 20 years since the United Nations resolution that authorized the Jewish people to create a state in their ancient homeland, world had turned its back on the Jewish state and its population of survivors. There was no response to the Arab claim that the Jewish people are interlopers in their own land and have no right to the biblical land of Israel.
0: Okay, so this sets the stage for our discussion, and the question really is, why is it? That the world um, either opposes our presence there or somehow cannot find a way to defend our presence there. We're the only ones that, ha- that are left to defend it. Um, so let's, let's say for example, what's been going what, what happened in May 1967. Can we find comparisons to what's happening right now in 2023? Iran. Okay, so what, what type of comparison here? Just like Nasser was saying, that's it, we have to destroy Israel. Iran is saying the same thing. And we're not going to do it with an army, we're going to do it with a, a nuclear bomb, right? A nuclear warhead. Um, any other ways that you would that you would find the comparison between that and that? Just,
1: and just as the UN ran out of the sky when Nasser sent them out, there's no real international buffer.
0: Exactly. Right. So the world is not willing to stand up and say, hey, Iran, you can't do that, and we will stop you. In other words, if you're going to mess with Israel, you're messing with us. No one's really saying that. No one is really willing to put themselves out there and say that's something that you can't do. Um, than any other uh, comparison here? Well, how are things different? How are things different than they were in May 1967?
1: Well, Israel can defend itself
0: now. You're saying it's a better army at this it's point? Much better army. Much better, Okay. Does the army help when we're talking about a nuclear warhead from uh, Iran?
1: Well, I don't think it would get there. Yeah. Oh, so you're saying? Oh, it so would we, still help. Well, we have, we, we
0: have Someone. Enough,
1: enough intelligence capabilities that they kind of know what's going to happen when.
0: So in other words, even though they're saying stuff, we don't feel that they can actually do that stuff. Right. Now, 1967 was like, uh, you know, <laughs> but if they say they're going to do it, and it looks like they're going to do it, and if they do it, it's not going to be pretty. And we're kind today we're kind of more we're more comfortable with saying there's someone out that that could stop them from doing it. Okay.
1: Right. Yeah. If right the now. Big enemy today is Iran. No. Uh, the U.S. isn't alone in. sorry, Israel, Israel isn't alone in calling Iran an enemy.
0: Correct. In other, the yeah.
1: U.S. does, Saudi Arabia even does, I mean you know, there are a lot of people that are very against Iran today, Who's the greatest threat to Israel?
0: So essentially it's not that you have an entire Arab world united against Israel, I mean today Israel has peace treaties with various Arab nations, uh, not necessarily their immediate neighbors but you know the, the Abraham Accords and things like that, these are all very helpful and kind of you know uh, giving us more of that comfort that you're not going to have an entire Arab world with, you know, 100 million people or uh, close to a billion people that could just, you know, walk in and then get you out of there. Um, But I I think another way that you can really uh, compare May 1967 to today is that it's it's frightening how even over 50 years later, um, there is such a broad debate and conversation and discussion of do Jews really belong there? Does Israel really belong there? And it becomes like this real debate there are two sides to it and there are some very fine people that find themselves on the other side of the debate and say well maybe maybe there shouldn't be a jewish state there I mean, they don't they don't want the, the jews should be killed but they're like how can you explain why there is a jewish state in the middle of the middle east you know there's so many different people that why you know why don't you just do your thing in poland right what does, what's your name say uh, the, the, you know go back to poland go to america go somewhere else right what? Uganda. Uganda? Oh, we'll get to Uganda in a moment. So so here really the question is what is the Jewish claim to the land of Israel? So what we'll do is we're gonna uh, uh, what what is the Jewish claim to the land of Israel? Does anyone the have any ideas? Bible. You say the Bible. Okay, Carlos says the Bible. Any other claims? I agree with you by the way so we can go no? I'm no, I, so what I would like the exercise we'd like to do in today's course is to go through what are the common claims that are proposed for the right of the Jews to have a homeland in the land of Israel what is the problem with these claims and then we'll get to the claim right the claim that Carlos says which is the Bible it's interesting we're going to bring quotes from the Israeli Declaration of Independence they bring three claims but not this one about the is, Balfour Declaration? Oh, so you're, so you're saying that might be a claim to having a... a in other words, there's the is Balfour Declaration.
1: statement that the right to Israel in Israel is recognized by, at the time, the British government, mm-hmm. who, who was there.
0: Right. So what you're suggesting is the international community recognizes the right for the Jews to have a land in Israel. Right. Okay.
1: There, maybe there is a problem that the Jews don't really sure that they belong to them and they're trying to of share it with the whole
0: world share it with neighbor. okay that, that's a that, that's a, a a real issue in other words what you're saying is uh, jews themselves aren't really sure if this land is exclusively theirs and if they belong there in the first place okay well that that's one of the things that this that this course is going to clarify what what in your know, jews have to know why they're there that's that's a very important point you know if the reason why you're in israel is by accident just because your parents gave birth to you in israel that, that's not a very good claim to being there, <clears throat> so um, so let, let's let's kind of go in a bit of a different order. We're going to get to the Balfour Declaration in a moment. But text number six is a quote from the Book of Maccabees. Have you ever heard of that book? Of course. Okay, so in that Catholic book, canon. Huh? It's in the Catholic, canon. the Catholic canon, right? It's not in the it's not in the Jewish canon. The uh, canon, right? So it was it was probably written by a Jew, but it was never really accepted as a traditional Jewish text, although it does have it does have historical relevance. Um, the story that is quoted over here in text number six, I'm sure you've all heard the Hanukkah story. The Hanukkah story the, the Greeks took control over the land of Israel, they, they ransacked the temple, and then there was a group of priests of Kohanim that took it back. They were the Chashmonayim, they were led by Matithiau, and then he died, and his son Judah the Maccabee took over. Judah had a brother, Shimon. After Judah's death, Shimon became the leader, the governor, the king, or whatever you want to call it in the land of Israel at the time. And there was always these, these, these different issues with the Greeks. So at one point, one of the Greek kings demanded that certain areas that Shimon had conquered several years earlier, that he should return it to them. So Simon answered Antiochus' messenger and said to him, It is not a foreign land that we have conquered, neither is it the possession of others over which we rule. It is the heritage of our ancestors, which was for some time unjustly conquered, which we, upon obtaining the power to do so, have restored to ourselves." It's a very simple argument. <coughs> saying, it's ours. We were there for many, many years. And so when we took it back, we were taking back what is rightfully ours. What's the. Now, and so how would that argument translate today? The argument would be look, we had it over 3,000 years ago. You know, it, w- it was in our possession for 850 years. And even after the destruction of the temple and the exile, Jews continued to live there barely 70 years later they rebuilt the temple, they were there for 420 years and after that exile, for the past 2,000 years there has been a Jewish presence consistently in the land of Israel. There has never been a time in history that there were no Jews in Israel. There's been a time that there's been no Jews in Jerusalem, but in the land of Israel, we've been there from the beginning. In fact, in the Diaspora Museum in Israel, there is a photo of a family that has been living in the same town in the Galilee for dozens of generations going all the way back to the first temple era. I've never met them. Apparently there's a picture of them. They exist. So in other words, we've been there. We have names. We have deeds. We know what's going on. Jews have been there for 3,000 years. So the fact that in 1948 they established a state there, they weren't just coming to some, you know, new place to establish a state. They're coming back to where Jews have been all the time. Um... And that's actually mentioned in the Israeli uh, Declaration of Independence, in text seven a. <coughs> the land of Israel was the birthplace of the Jewish people. <laughs> that's not really true. Depend- the question is when, when, where were the Jews born? Abraham. So if you say Abraham, Abraham wasn't born in Israel. Yeah. So Isaac was born in Israel. Fine. The Jewish people left Egypt and became a nation at Sinai. Sinai is not in Israel. Sinai is not is I mean, Maybe it should be part of our borders because we conquered it in the Six Day War, but uh, for a certain amount years. of time. But even biblically speaking, it's it not was. part of the Holy Land, right? But anyway, uh, here their spiritual, religious, and political identity was shaped. That's not also entirely true. But okay, no problem. Um, they were forcibly exiled, right? And so we're basically coming back to a place where we were. It's a very simple argument. What's the problem with that argument? What's the problem? Our enemies are not too happy with us. Is there a legitimate problem? Or is there a hole in this argument? Maybe America should go back to the Indians? Maybe Australia should go back to the Aborigines? All right? You know, there isn't an there isn't a country in the world today, or a nation in the world today that's on a on land that they could date back 5,000 years that they've been there. I mean, the world is a fluid place, you know? (laughs) So, if your whole argument for being there is, hey, we were once there 2,000 years ago, Ah, I have a family in the Galilee that's been there. Like, come on, are you kidding? Like, that's how you're going to decide that that's why you belong there. You were there, you lost it, move on. Go to Uganda, go to Poland, I don't know, go to Texas. Someone told me today, I, I never heard about this, that there's a book, I forgot what the name of the book is, an imagination book that, that basically Israel didn't happen, and so the Jews went to Alaska. Have you ever heard about this? Uh? Well, it's a famous book, I'm told. No. Oh, yes. I just think that there are a lot of
1: creepy people in this world too. So, I mean, if there is a book that says
0: that, like no, it was like it was like a sci-fi type of like you know thing. Anyway,
1: yeah,
0: yeah. cute book, but anyway, really the question is, just because your are gra- two thousand, I mean, two thousand years ago you lost it, so move on, guys. You know, set up shop somewhere else. In Bishan, that's where Stalin wanted to set up a whole Jewish uh, place, right? All right, let's get to the international law argument, right? The one that uh, Mr. Chase brought up. He said, Walter. Okay, so Walter mentioned that there was a Balfour Declaration in 1917. Well, okay, let's do a little bit of history. So, from the 1500s till about the so till uh, 1917, the Ottoman Empire was in control. 1917, the Ottoman Empire basically dissolved. And uh, the Allies, is that what they were called the Allies then? Yeah. Allies, okay. The
1: French and the British.
0: Right. So so the winners. <laughs> the winners basically said, okay, we have to divide up all these different uh, territories. And Palestine was given to the British. And and specifically to set up a Jewish homeland. That's pretty much what it says, right? Well, yeah,
1: it's like Spicot Treaty. Right. The French and the British divided up the Middle East. The French got Lebanon. And uh, the British got Palestine.
0: Right, right. But also, it was something very specific about a homeland, but Dana Dana Frank is mentioning here, um, Michael Shab- Chabon's, the that's Yiddish... the book you were
2: talking about, the, the, about Alaska.
0: Policeman's un- the Yiddish Policeman's Union. Okay, there's yeah. the book. <laughs> if you want to know about <laughs> some imagin- imaginatory Jewish homeland in Alaska. Thank you, Dana. I appreciate that. All righty, so... Yeah, that's why
1: your
0: uncle's there. Huh? That's home. why my uncle's there, yeah. <laughs> go there, you'll find the Jewish homeland with the moose. <laughs> um, so, for, um, there was a something in the Balfour Declaration. It states that it's specifically for... Where did it say that over here? Just a moment. His Majesty's government go- government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. That, that's pretty much the idea. They weren't there just to you know, set up another British man, it was a British mandate specifically for the Jews. That's pretty much the idea. Um, a little bit after that, they, they kind of went back on it. There was something called the White Papers, and so they limited uh, you know, immigration, they started to play games over there. But essentially, there's like this this internationally recognized document, the Balfour Declaration, the Jews should, should have a homeland there. And what's, what's more than the U.N. partition plan, right? In 1947, they made a partition plan between the Arabs and the Jews, and the U.N. voted, and the international community officially ma- gave the mandate and they justified the existence of a Jewish homeland in, in Israel, in Palestine, in that, in that area, right? And the Israeli the, the Declaration of Independence says the same thing. Uh, text 7b, this right was recognized in the Balfour Declaration, reaffirmed in the mandate of the League of Nations, and then the next paragraph, on the 29th of November 1947, the General Assembly, the UN General Assembly passed a resolution calling for the establishment of a Jewish state in the land of Israel. Okay? So that's international law uh, argument. What's the hole with this argument? What's the problem?
1: I the Arabs didn't agree
0: with it. Okay, the Arabs didn't agree with it. No problem. Another countries
1: the, didn't belong
0: to the UN. Okay, so you're saying is it didn't really represent the entire world. Fine. What's another problem? Size of the the Israeli army at the time, in the sense that they weren't very strong. He's Uh, saying to defend such a a, such a space. space. Okay, the real problem with this is if my legitimacy to this spot, um, all right, we'll get to that in a moment. But if my legitimacy to this spot is because a group of people in New York, representing a bunch of nations, decided that I belong here, you know what they could do tomorrow? They could decide I don't belong here. We're done. (laughs) if they're the ones that gave you the license to be here they could take take away your license they could pull you away Um, Catherine brings up a point says there were there were already people living there there are other people living there how can you give away someone else's land to someone else right so it's not like the Jews were officially kicking out the Arabs under the UN partition plan they only start to kick them out afterwards, right? You're fighting with us. You're becoming a, a threat. We have to clean you out in order to make sure that we don't get killed. The,
1: the declaration says that all people of all religions have
0: can evolved. be here. Yeah, 100%. So just the fact that we're being hospitable to those that are already there, that doesn't mitigate the, the essential problem. Who is the UN to decide that this place belongs to us? And if they're the ones to decide that, they could decide the opposite now. But the British were in control
1: and they gave it to the U.N., threw <coughs> their hands up in the air and said we
0: can't control it anymore. Okay, fine.
1: So who would have determined their fate?
0: I have no problem with the U.N. voting that the Jews should have a homeland there. That's fine. But if that's my claim to the land, I'm in trouble. Because just like the U.N. could give it to me, the U.N. can come tomorrow and say, hey, this is not working out. It's a powder keg. You guys really don't belong there. For all intents, of, you know, we tried. It was a nice, uh, it was a nice experiment. But the Arab, you, you have 100 million Arabs And what, by now 6 million Jews? Come on, 100 to 6 Guys, we'll give you Texas You make a Jewish homeland there You know. In other words, if that's our claim to the land It doesn't really have Two feet to stand on It doesn't really Stand on its own Because the same people that gave it to us Could take it away There's another very famous argument What is that? We need a land in order to survive that's why Herzl started the whole Zionist movement, right? He figured that, you know, the diaspora, that's not a place for Jews to live. We're not going to be able to survive there. And that, uh, I mean, recent history, we want to go back, you know, the past few hundred years, kind of proves that Jews actually throughout the past 2,000 years. Um, for the past 2,000 years, wherever we've been, you know, there's been some good times, but mostly bad times. And sometimes those bad times escalated to real existential threats. The holocaust and one of the reasons why so many jews were killed in the holocaust is because they had nowhere to go most countries will let them immigrate even to palestine right so what's the argument if there would be a jewish homeland that would accept all jews every jew anytime so then jews will have where to go they'll have an exit strategy okay and in fact the israeli De- uh, declaration of independence text 7c makes that argument. The catastrophe which recently befell the Jewish people, the massacre of millions of Jews in Europe, was another clear demonstration of the urgency of solving the problem of its homelessness by re-establishing in the land of Israel the Jewish state, which would open the gates of the homeland wide to every Jew and confer upon the Jewish people the status of a fully privileged member of the community of nations." What's the problem with that? What's the problem with that argument?
1: the problem is we got this
0: in the Bible many times we'll get to the Bible in a second, hold on, hold on the question is, what is is this a good argument for having a homeland in Israel why not, you're saying that enough I want to know what's the problem with this you could make such a homeland in Uganda or in Birobizhan or in Alaska that's number one number two There are six million Jews concentrated in Israel today. You know who's happy about that? The Iranians. Because if they want to get rid of six million Jews, they're all in one place. One bomb, we're done, right? One of the reasons why we have survived was because we were dispersed, by the way, right? When there was trouble here, there were others there. First of all, to welcome the survivors. And also, Judaism never, ever disappeared, was never in danger of disappearing. Yeah, if Hitler would have had his way, yeah, we would all disappear, but he wasn't really gonna to get to the United States. He wasn't, he tried, he tried, and all that. So he, you know, I mean, it was terrible what he did, and it was like a third of the Jewish people, and that's a horrible, horrible thing. But guess what, because there was a huge amount of Jews in America, there was a many Jews in Israel, et cetera, there was a certain possibility for Judaism to rebound after that catastrophe. So in fact, the counter-argument to this Jewish homeland thing for Jewish survival could be, uh, by the way, concentrating all the Jews in one place isn't a good idea. If we have so many enemies, as long as there's anti-Semitism, as long as people are going to want to get rid of Jews, right? So I'm not saying it's a bad idea to have us all in one place, but the point is that that doesn't necessarily, it's not the strongest argument for it being specifically in Israel and to bringing all the Jews to one place. In other words, in the current reality, that actually might be a very dangerous idea. When Mashiach comes and there's no more anti-Semitism, no more war, no more of hate no more hatred. Jews can be all concentrated in one place, and there's no problem with that. But in a world where there is hatred, there is anti-Semitism, there are those that want to get rid of the Jews being in one place is probably not the best idea. And the main counter argument to it is, and as the Arabs the, the, the Arabs always argued and said, why do we have to pay the price of the European murder of the Jews? They want to make a homeland? They want to be safe? Find another spot on earth to do it. Why does it have to be here? Why does it have to be right in the middle of, the, you know, the Middle East and Africa and everything, boom, in the center of the world? Why does have to be there? Go somewhere else. They wouldn't bother us. It's interesting to note that anti Semitism was not so strong in the Arab worlds, in the, in, in the Arab countries, in the Muslim world, at all. Jews were always second class citizens, but this was nothing in comparison to what was going on in Europe. For a thousand years, the Jews in Europe suffered terribly. You know, talking about going all the way back to the Crusaders, the Inquisition, the Cossacks, then the Holocaust, it's all happened in Europe. Jews in Muslim countries were essentially, you know, they were pretty safe. They pay their tax and they were second class citizens, they got spit on, whatever it was, yeah? You, you can live. It's not that's not the worst thing in the world. <coughs> it wasn't until the establishment of the State of Israel, or, you know, the whole Zionist, you know, situation that was going on there that that's when that's when it started to, you know, become much more clearer and, and it started to fester more and it started to become very bloodthirsty, etc. Alrighty. Um, so we have three arguments, all three of them have an inherent problem with them um, maybe let's put all three of them together yeah you want to put all three of them together no problem what's the question here you know the world doesn't really accept all of those arguments and they're still asking questions and by the way which is total hypocrisy because you know you know for example the argument of uh, you know we were, were here now just leave it to us right that's the same argument you could have with every other country right if the aborigines come to Australia to say Give it back to us. I mean, like, Come on. There's millions of us Australians here. We're not going nowhere. That's American, it. We're Indian done. Uh, exactly. The Indians with the Americans. I mean, the, every country in the world is on occupied land. All right? But we don't call it that. We call it what it is, and that's it. We move on. Why can the world move on with regard to Israel? So, let's get to the real reason. What is the best reason and the best justification for the Jewish people? to be in the land of Israel. So, now we're going to go back to the Torah and uh, go to the very first verse of the Torah. The first, What's the opening story of the Bible? Creation. bara In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Rashi was a great sage who lived about 900 years ago in France, right around the beginning of the, the time of the Crusaders. His name was Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki and he wrote a commentary on the Torah, which is just called Rashi. That's the Rashi commentary. And this is the most, the most foundational commentary on the Torah. And his opening commentary on the Torah is on this verse, and he asks a question. Rabbi Yitzchak said, this is quoting a Talmudic sage, The Torah ought to have begun with the verse, This month shall be to you, etc., which is the first mitzvah commanded to the people of Israel. Why then does it begin with, in the beginning, (coughs) God created the heavens and the earth? So this Talmudic sage, Rabbi Yitzchak, says the following. If you look at the Torah, the five books of Moses, the book of Genesis, and the first three uh, parashiyot, the first three sections of the book of Shemot, of Exodus, seem to be out of place. If the Torah is a book of instructions, Torah means instruction. That's what Torah literally means. So it should be a book of mitzvot, a book of laws. It should have started at the very first mitzvah. The first mitzvah that's communicated by God to Moses to the Jewish people is while they're still in the land of Egypt, before they left, before Passover, and they were told the mitzvah of how to set up the Jewish calendar. That's the first mitzvah. So the big question is, Torah, which means instruction, should have started with that story, with that narrative. Why does the Torah begin with creation? And all of the stories from creation until then. So Rashi answers. Uh, He invokes a verse from Psalms. The strength of his works he related to his people to give them the inheritance of the nations. So the first half of the verse says like this. God relates. God shares with his people, with with the people of Israel. He shares in his Torah the strength of his work. In other words, the fact that he created the world. Why did he share that? Why did he relate that to us? To give us the inheritance of the nations in order to give us our legitimate claim to the land of Israel. What is that? And he explains. If the nations of the world world will say to Israel, You are thieves for having conquered the lands of the seven nations. Israel will reply, The entire world is God's. He created it and granted it to whomever he desired. It was his will to give it to the seven nations, and it was his will to take it from them and give it to us. I forgot to mention that in the first argument that we had, that hey, we were there for so long, it was our homeland for over thirty-three thousand years, we deserve to be there. What's the strongest counter-argument to that? The Canaanites. The Canaanites came before you. So if the Canaanites' great-grandchildren will come and prove with DNA testing or whatever it is that they're the original Canaanites, they could can take it away from you right? So that's why that first argument really, it's not a good one, because we weren't there originally. It wasn't originally ours. So why does the Torah begin in Bereshit? Why does the Torah begin with creation? To give us the, the premise for our claim to the land. And what is the premise? to say, look guys, you all believe in the Bible. You all accept the Bible as the word of God. What does it say in the Bible? God created heaven and earth. The creator is the owner. God gave it to the Canaanites, took it away from them, gave it to us, and there was no expiration date to the gift. At least it doesn't say that in the Torah, right? So that's our, that's our proof. In fact, you know, Carlos mentioned right away hey, the Bible. That's our proof. There's a story. Uh, there's a story told. You ever heard of Rabbi Lau, Rabbi Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Israel, Mayor Lau? He was. Uh, <laughs> Chief, he was the chief rabbi of Israel for a while. Um, he's, he was a child when he survived the war. He was in the camps. So he once met uh, Prime Minister Ben-Gurion. As, as a young man, he, he met him in the early 60s or something. See, I had always heard that there was a story told that in the late 30s or early 40s, at some point there was a meeting between a Zionist delegation and the British or whatever it was, and Ben-Gurion was there. And they were challenged and they said, Where is your deed to your connection to the land of Israel? I said, David Ben-Gurion was not a practicing Jew. Maybe he could have claimed that he wasn't even a believing Jew. Whatever it was, he was certainly not, uh, he wasn't wearing a yarmulke all the time or going to Shoal, you know, on uh, a Monday and Thursday. He grabbed the Bible and he said, this is our deed. This was a story that was going around. So Rabbi Lau decided to ask him point blank, is it true? He asked him, is it true that you did that? He looked at him and he said, Emet It's true. It's a true story. He said, the, o- the only real claim that we have to Israel is this. Uh, President Herzog, Yitzchak Herzog, who just spoke to uh, to the U.S. Congress, right? He, he was in the Capitol. Part of his speech he said, the land of Israel, which was given to us by God. He, he said it. It's there in the Bible. That is the only argument that we really have. I mean, there's, there's, there's more to the argument in a moment. But this is the foundation to the argument. And that is that the world belongs. To God. God created the world. The world belongs to God. God gave it to us. There was no expiration date to that gift. And by the way, you could ask and say, well, God can say the story of creation and then fast forward all the way to the story of the Jewish calendar. Why does it have to go through all the stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? What's going on over here? And the answer is, if you go through all these stories, there's a running theme. God promises Abraham the land for his children. And that promise is continued with Yitzchak. And then with Yaakov. When Yaakov has the famous dream with the the ladder, right? Jacob's ladder. What's the message in Jacob's ladder? You will inherit the land. Moses has a meeting with God at the burning bush. What does God tell him? You're going to take the land, the people out of Egypt and bring them to the land of Israel. That, that's the message. Moses didn't end up going there, but it ended up happening, right? So it's not just about Bereshit, the story of creation. It's also the fact that we have an entire centuries-long narrative of God communicating to our ancestors a covenant, a promise that this land will be given to us. And that is the claim that we have to the land of Israel. And then it gets even deeper. Um, Oh, very good. Um, It gets even deeper than that. Because when God gave us the land of Israel, He didn't just say, okay, here is prime real estate for you to live. He gave us the land of Israel and He said, I'm giving you a Torah and that Torah has 613 mitzvot. And the vast majority of those mitzvot are dependent on living in the land of Israel. Hundreds of mitzvot. Are, are, there are 248 positive commandments. Today, we can only observe about 60 of them. 70, something like that, because the vast majority of those 248 can only be observed in Israel. That means that our essential identity, our relationship with God is tied to that geographical location. Text 9. This comes from Nachmanides. There's Maimonides and Nachmanides. Rambam and Ramban. Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman. The sages of the Talmud declared, anyone who lives outside of the land is comparable to one who has no God, as it is written, to give to you the land of Kena'an to be a God for you. In one of those times that God promised the land to the Jewish people, He said... I'm going to give you the land so I could be your God. So that you can have a relationship with me. For all the mitzvot of the Torah were given primarily to be fulfilled by those who dwell in the land of Israel. In fact, many of the mitzvahs that we do today are only like, like a preparation for where we're going to live in the land of Israel. I'll give you an example. The mitzvah of mezuzah. The mitzvah of mezuzah, if you rent someplace outside of the land of Israel you don't put up a mezuzah with a blessing for the first 30 days. For the first 30 days, don't do that. You can put up a mezuzah right away, but you don't make a blessing. After 30 days, take off the mezuzah and put it back on with a blessing. In Israel, you're at a place for a day, put up a mezuzah, make a blessing. And there are many mitzvahs like that. That there's a difference with the way you you observe them in Israel or outside of Israel. There's even more than that. The land of Israel, the fact that we have a land that we call our own, that is so intricately, that, that, that is so, um, our, our holiness, the fact that we're able to bring the holiness of God to the entire world, depends on that. In text number 10, um, there's, there's something from Rabbi Sachs, um, the late Rabbi Sachs. Why should a religion be tied to a land? It sounds absurd, especially in the context of monotheism. Surely the God of everywhere can be served anywhere. In simple language, why does a holy temple have to be in Jerusalem? Let's do it somewhere else. God could be anywhere, so make a temple anywhere. One of the most common problems I hear from Jews is, Rabbi, do we really have to build a third temple right there on the Temple Mount? Come on, why do we have to bother them? Let's do it somewhere else. right? That's pretty much the rabbi's question here. Judaism is not primarily about personal salvation, the relationship between the individual and God in the inner recesses of the soul. It is about collective redemption. Jews are not here just that we should go to heaven. We're here to bring redemption to the entire world. We are social animals. Therefore, we find God in society. That is what we discover when we reflect on the basic structure of the Torah's many commands. They include laws about the administration of justice, the conduct of war, ownership of land, employer-employee relationships, the welfare of the poor and the periodic cancellation of debts. Laws shape a society and a society needs space. A sacred society needs sacred space, a holy land. Hence, Jews and Judaism need their own land. In 4,000 years, for much of which Jews lived in exile, the people of the covenant were scattered over the face of the earth. There is no land in which Jews have never lived. Yet in all those centuries, there was only one land where they were able to do what almost every other nation takes for granted, create their own society in accordance with their own beliefs. That was the only place where the Jews actually did that. The premise of the Torah is that God must be found somewhere in particular if he is to be found everywhere in general. So we need a specific land, in order that the Jews should be able to do their mission, which is to bring God to every part of the world. So why specifically there? Oh, listen to this, text 11. If you look at a map, you will see that the geographical location of the land of Israel virtually guaranteed that it would play a key role in the tides of civilization. The old world consisted of two great land masses, Eurasia, Europe and Asia, and Africa. It was impossible to travel from Eurasia to Africa without passing through the Holy Land. Therefore, every conqueror, every civilization that passed from one continent to the other had to pass through the Holy Land and come in contact with the Jew. Besides being a gateway between north and south, the Holy Land is part of the keystone link between east and west. In the past, most caravan routes linking the Atlantic and Pacific passed directly through the Holy Land. The land of Israel is therefore literally the crossroads of civilization. So that gives us an appreciation for the location of this holy land. Number one, the Jews that are, the, the nation that needs to bring God everywhere needs to have one space in particular where that holiness manifests itself. And if the goal is that that holiness should spread everywhere, it's got to be at the center. So now we can understand why specifically that location. Was chosen by God to be the Holy Land. Um, So, let's go to text number 13 from Rabbi Sachs. You know, let's do text 12 for a moment. Um, Is it possible to justify the existence of the Jewish state? This question raised with increased frequency in recent years is not just a theoretical one. Israel will endure as a Jewish state only if it can be defended in both the physical and the moral sense. Over the many years in which I have participated in debates about Israel's constitutional foundations and the rights of its citizens, I did not generally feel this question to be particularly urgent. Indeed, I believe that there was no more need to demonstrate the legitimacy of a Jewish state than there was for any other nation-state, and I did not take claims to the contrary very seriously what she's saying basically is that the first three arguments are good enough we were there, we need it the international community recognizes it, we're good those who denied the legitimacy of Israel as a Jewish state were in my eyes little different from the radical ideologues who dismiss all national movements as inherently immoral or who insist that Judaism is solely a religion with no right to national self-expression their claims seemed marginal and unworthy of systematic refutation Today I realize that my view was wrong. The repudiation of Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state is now a commonly held position and one that is increasingly seen as legitimate. Twenty years ago, one would not have imagined that in Congress people would actually say such things. And today it's, uh, you know, right? Among Israeli Arabs, for example, it is nearly impossible to find anyone willing to endorse, at least publicly, the right of Jews to national self-determination in the land of Israel. Rejection of the Jewish state has in fact become the norm among most representatives of the Arab public, including those who have sworn allegiance as members of Knesset. (laughs) They're living off the state, (laughs) they're safe because of the state, and they still say we can't defend the fact that the Jews have a state here. More worrisome, perhaps, is the fact that many Jews in Israel agree with this view, or at least show a measure of sympathy for it, as Amit pointed out. This is not a view that is completely written off by Jews themselves, by many Jews that actually live in Israel. So let's continue to text 13. Today, the overwhelming majority of those who challenge Israel's right to exist believe in Israel's God, that is to say, the God of Abraham. They belong to the large family of faith known as the Abrahamic monotheisms. To them we must humbly say, when it comes to political conflict, let us search for a political solution. Let us work together in pursuit of peace. But When it comes to religion, let us not forget that without Judaism there would be no Christianity and no Islam. Unlike Christianity and Islam, Judaism never sought to convert the world and never created an empire. All it sought was one tiny land promised to the children of Israel by the creator of the universe in whom Jews, Christians and Muslims all believe. Sadly, Rabbi Yitzchak was right. He's talking about the Rabbi Yitzchak that's quoted by Rashi. Rashi wrote it 900 years ago. Rabbi Yitzchak taught this 2,000 years ago. Rashi was right to quote him at the beginning of his Torah commentary. The Jewish people would be challenged on its right to the land by people who claim to worship the same God that same God summons us today to the dignity of the human person, the sanctity of human life, and the imperative of peace. And that same God tells us that in a world of 82 Christian nations and 56 Muslim ones, there is room for one small Jewish state. And this is the foundation of Torah. This is the opening verse of Torah. And this is the reason why the Torah teaches us about creation. Why? Because it is clear that the nations of the world would challenge it. And we're talking here about nations that the, the, the land wasn't stolen from them. None of the nations challenging the Jewish right to a Jewish homeland in Israel are saying, we're the Canaanites, give it back to us. You took it from our Zaidi. You took it from our Bubby." No, they don't say that at all. But they can't wrap their heads around the fact that why should a Jew need to have a land? You're a Jew, relationship with God, go into your synagogue, Right? What do you need this land for? What do you need any land for? The answer to that is we need that land because it was given to us and because our very identity is linked to that land. So, the next time you're a challenge and say, hey, why do Jews have a land there? The answer is it's ours no matter what. It was gifted to us by the creator of the universe. There was no expiration date to that. Our very identity, our the way our 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 way of life and our purpose and our destiny in this world is linked to that land as well. And if we are going to be comfortable with that and we are able to communicate that to others, there is no way to refute that. There is no way to refute. And so this is a message that we have to teach ourselves inculcate within our consciousness and um, will that get rid of our enemies? maybe not, yeah. but at least we have a legitimate claim we have a legitimate argument and the truth is that people are impressed with truth people are impressed with confidence and if David Ben-Gurion could take a Bible and say this is our deed to the land every Jew can do that and every Jew should do that but the only way we're comfortable with waving the Bible and saying this is our deed is if we're comfortable with the Bible <laughs> we have to be comfortable with this book we have to know what it is and what's its relevance in our lives at that point so that takes a little bit more work so this is this is the conclusion of today's uh, today's lesson uh, tomorrow we're going to talk about I mean next week we'll talk about the preemptive strike the six day war, we were the aggressors right? we, we, sh- <laughs> we pulled the trigger first my question is, is that justified? But we'll talk about that next week. Any uh, questions or comments before we officially sign off?
1: I'm glad I finally found the root of
0: the Meshka Hefri, all I need is so. I so. oh, found it in Psalms, that's right. That's it. I said it often
1: enough, now I know where it's from.
0: Yep. Alrighty, well, thank you for joining us.